All right, good morning. Welcome to everybody in the room, tuning in online. If you're out in the atrium, thank you for being here. Thank you for connecting. It's great to experience all of you today. I can't see all of you, but I can experience the same uh, presence that we have together. My name is Ryan. If you're a guest this morning, if this is your first time tuning in or coming into the room, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads, which means I get to work with an amazing group of volunteers and a team to hopefully create the space where we experience hope and we bring hope and uh, we become peacemakers. People that are committed to the wholeness of this world, to making it a better place. That's kind of the the big idea in layman's terms. So great to have everybody with us. We're in our series, our Lent series, which Lent is that season leading up to Easter, uh, called Again and Again, Again and Again. And our anchor verse, kind of the the verse from Scripture that I'm encouraging everybody to memorize, is found in this book in the Old Testament called Lamentations, chapter 3. And it says, the Lord's acts of mercy are not exhausted. Y'all ever had your acts of mercy exhausted as a parent or as a friend? Maybe like, enough! (laughs) If you've you've ever unfriended somebody on Facebook, that's the moment where your acts of mercy are exhausted right there in that moment. Not that anybody in this room has ever done that. It's right. It says that God's compassion is not spent, that his mercies, God's mercies are new each morning. Great is your faithfulness. That every morning, again and again, we're invited into the mercy of God. And this week, we're exploring this idea that God invites us to listen again and again. If you're a talk notes person, a fill in the blank, you can find those online. Or as you came in, you received them with your offering envelope. You can pull those out. And uh, I always say that talk notes give you hope that it will end It will end, like seven fill-ins, six fill-ins, five, all that good stuff, right? So we're talking about listening again and again, and what is it that we're called to listen to? That's what I want to explore today a little bit together, whether you're at home uh, tuning in or here in the room, is what are we called to listen to? What are we invited to listen to again and again? How many of you have ever um, heard a voice in your head? You ever heard a voice in your head in a positive way? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand if you're in a negative way, but like that voice in your head. Sometimes these voices come into our head and nobody's around, but we hear their voice. Like maybe it's a friend or a coach or a parent or a spouse, right? And you hear their voice, right? You're getting ready to engage in something and you hear the voice whispering something to you. And and maybe it's a positive thing, right? Maybe it's a voice from a friend or a coach who just believes in you. Like they're your person, Right? You just know that they're with you, that, that if they ever found out that you killed someone, they would assume you had a good reason and they would help you bury the body. You know, that kind of friend. I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just using that as an illustration, right? That kind of friend that like, they would just be a positive assumption about the whole situation. Don't even explain it. I just, right. That, and they, maybe they have like this wisdom that they always would say to you, like it, you're in a difficult space, a difficult time, but they would just always give you some wisdom. They, maybe they had a catchphrase that would just help you believe in yourself. So you're getting ready to go into an interview or you're experiencing a difficult circumstance at work or at home and, and you hear that voice kind of in your head encouraging you. Maybe it was a coach always pushing you or a parent telling you that you were loved whole, that you were loved fully no matter what the world tells you or a spouse that's always encouraging to you, right? They're always encouraging you along the way. You hear that voice. We love those voices. We love them. We need more of them in our lives. A voice that we don't like sometimes is maybe those same voices, uh, the same people, or maybe even people we don't know, but it's a voice in our head that is a convicting voice, right? A convicting voice, a voice that calls us to betterness, a voice that says to us, you, you have to kind of take ownership or a convicting voice that kind of keeps the guardrails up in our lives. Maybe there's the convicting voice of a parent when you go to grab the cookie and they said, I told you don't grab them. You hear the voice, they're not around, right? 
But conviction is this voice, it's this behavior, it's this emotion that we experience that cause us to change. And change is usually difficult, and so we kind of try to ignore that voice as best as we can. We ignore it. We ignore the voice that causes us to question things that we've believed, to question things that are maybe other people's realities, the voices that we hear around us. And the reason why it's, we just, we push them out, we push them out because these voices basically say things like, there's no more excuses. You can't make any more excuses for the situation you're in. You've got to start taking some ownership. You've got to start looking around you, right? And this, these voices invite us into a really tough space. It's a space where we lament kind of the darkness of this world and we kind of lament our part in it. And because this is such an uncomfortable voice, it's one that we don't want to hear, oftentimes we just shut it out, we shut it until this voice is screaming bloody murder at us. We feel like everywhere we go, everywhere we turn, we just hear it over and over again. And we can't ignore it anymore. I looked up this phrase, screaming bloody murder. You can actually look it up as an idiom. It's like this just shouting to get someone's attention with such intensity, right? Maybe you've screamed bloody murder at your kids when they started to run and you saw them, they're going into the street, right? So you just start screaming to get their attention. Danger, stop, right? And that's what happens, these convicting voices, because conviction is, a, is something that's good in our lives. Conviction is something that calls us to a better version of ourselves. And that is hopefully something we're all trying to achieve, is a better version of who we are as we grow, as we become more mature, as we become older human beings, as we have more experiences in life. Like it's this desire, okay, I want to become a better version. And I want to talk today about a voice that cries out to us in our world, and we get this beautiful metaphor in the Bible about it, but it's kind of a weird thing where this voice comes from. But what's powerful about it is, uh, is that it's, it's all throughout Scripture, and it's one of the most fundamental kind of metaphors and images within the Christian faith. And I want to talk about the voice of blood, I want to talk about the voice of blood. If you've been around church, uh, a Christian church, for any length of time, you've probably heard this expression around the blood of Jesus, or you've heard a lot of talk about sacrifice and blood and animals. And I want to spend a few minutes today, if you'll stick with me, kind of looking at this idea of blood. It's why it's so important in the Christian faith, but I want to look at it from a different perspective. So I want to say right off the bat, so you, in case you're wondering, I kind of hold to a belief, and you probably, if you've been around for a little bit, you've heard me talk about this, that I don't really hold to this. There's lots of different ways that people think about blood in the Bible and the blood of Jesus. So one, I think it's a huge metaphor, and you'll see where I'm getting with that today. But I don't hold to this belief that, that, that we're all so bad that God sent Jesus to shed his blood because the only way that God could forgive us uh, was if someone paid the price for our sins. And if, if Jesus comes and pays and is the perfect kind of lamb of God, that language that we see, then the, we're covered in, in the blood and now we get to go to heaven because God's anger, God's righteousness, God's wrath has been appeased through Jesus. So I'm just going to say this right off the bat. I don't really believe that. Now, I do believe in the power of the cross. I believe in the power of Jesus' blood, but that's not how I think of it. And because I think as you look in Scripture, what we actually see is God fighting against that mentality. That there is this better way to understand blood if we see kind of like the whole of the picture. 
And so that might be strange to some of you, but it's not strange. Like within the Christian movement, there's lots of different ways to think about this. But one of the big reasons why I don't think this is true, that this idea that God is so perfect and so uh, righteous and we're such sinners that God could never be in our presence, we could never be in God's presence because of that, it seems to me it falls apart all throughout the scripture because God seems to make these appearances and nobody spontaneously combusts. And Jesus walked around just forgiving sins willy-nilly. Like it was no big deal. Your sins are free. Nobody even asked for it. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are... Like Jesus was around people all the time that we would classify as sinners under that model. And, and they never died in Jesus' presence. They were welcomed into his presence. So I want to look at this idea of blood and maybe give us a framework for seeing it in a healthier way and in a way that doesn't lose its kind of power, the imagery, but calls us into something different. And the place to start is really with this story of Cain and Abel. Um, If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Cain and Abel is kind of the first story of murder or homicide uh, that we see in in the sacred story, in this story of Scripture. And if you're not familiar with it, Cain and Abel are brothers. Uh, They're the only two brothers that we know of in the story right now. And Cain and Abel, they go and they make a sacrifice to God. The God's name is Yahweh. For some strange reason, they make this sacrifice in the text. We won't really know because God never tells them to start sacrificing things or to make offerings. Uh, We don't see that, but there was the assumption of this at the time it was written. And so they're making an offering to God. And in some way, uh, Abel's offering is pleasing to God and Cain's offering is not pleasing to God. And Cain gets embarrassed by this and he gets very angry. And so rather than taking responsibility for whatever it is that's going on in his heart and his life, he sees the problem as his brother Abel. So he goes out in the field, he confronts Abel, and he ends up uh, killing him. And so he leaves. Now, we don't know, like, did, did Cain know that he killed him? Maybe he didn't know. Did he try? Did he premeditate? Who knows? But at the end of the story is Cain has killed Abel. And so Cain's out hanging out doing his thing, and God shows up, and God asks Cain, hey, where's your brother Abel? Which is kind of funny to me. God is in the habit of losing people, right? In the first three or four chapters of Genesis. I mean, he's walking through the garden. He can't find Adam and Eve. It's like, where are my humans at? I've lost them again. Like, there's only four of them, God. What do you mean you've lost another one? Right? I mean, like, God, I thought you knew everything. But this is such a great image that these stories that we get handed down to us, right? Because says, where's your brother Abel? I've got an appointment with him. I need to talk to him. And, And Cain, like, this is not the question Cain wants, Right? He's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And, and Yahweh, the, the God, says to Cain in this story, what have you done? What have you done? And then he makes this statement, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood cries out. And it's the first time we have the spilled blood of a scapegoat, right? Where this big idea that you take something and you displace your sin or your anger or your frustration, you put it on that thing, and then you take it out on that thing, and that thing this time was Abel. It's the first time we see it, and this is a major theme all throughout Scripture, the idea of a scapegoat, where we just, we put all of our sins and all of our problems on someone else, the other. There's a couple things about this passage that I find fascinating. One is, the Hebrew word here for blood is plural. So it actually says quite literally that your brother's bloods cries out to me. Now, this sounds strange to us, and it could just be a simple grammatical issue, a problem with the text, but lots of commentators throughout the ages have picked up on this issue. And there's a group of writings called the Mishnah, which were put together by the rabbis, and it was when they took the oral law of Judaism, uh, and they, they put it in written form. 
And there's commentary all throughout kind of the, the Torah, the, the five books of Moses. And, and in the Mishnah, they talk about this passage very specifically. It's very fascinating what the rabbi said. The rabbi said, this is why it says bloods, because it was the, the future generations that were lost that were also crying out to God that day. And they said this, it's very powerful. They said, to kill a person is to kill an entire world. And to save a person is to save a world. That there's something about the fabric of the universe when the, the innocent blood, when the blood kind of drips into the earth, that the universe itself knows something is wrong. Something has ended that shouldn't have ended. There's been a world that's been destroyed. And I love the other thing about this is that the, the word crying here is present and active. It's not something that happened in the past. Right, that this blood of Abel, it didn't cry out. It wasn't Abel crying when he was murdered. No, this is, this is after the fact. This is the very earth itself that has soaked up this blood, and it's crying out continually. And this imagery, this idea of blood and sacrifice and killing, like it carries on throughout all the Old Testament, and we could look at it over and over again, but I want to just jump ahead to Jesus because Jesus actually makes a comment about this story, this person, Abel. And it happens in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day. Matthew chapter 23, it's kind of like the woe chapter. Jesus is like, woe to you Pharisees and Sadducees, you teachers of the law. You distort the truth and you make it so difficult uh, for people and they can't. And he just lists all these things that have happened and that are taking place to exclude people, right? That are, that are frustrating people trying to draw near to God. And he kind of culminates this section, right? And this is what Jesus says. He says, therefore, because of all these things, behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them you will kill and crucify. You'll shed their, their blood too. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And this is where it gets really interesting. Jesus says, so that there may come upon you all the righteous bloodshed upon earth. There's a connective tissue here of all suffering, of all injustice. And he says, from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Right? He says, it, 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 this bookend, right, is what it's saying. And he goes on, he says, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, a couple of things about this, right? Jesus, in this statement, equates the behavior of the Sadducees and the Pharisees that would put all these burdens on people, that would keep them away from God's promises and keep them away from God's presence and would exclude them, that that behavior is, is equated with Cain's murderous actions. It's the same. It's the shedding of blood. It's the persecution. And it's this idea that all injustice and violence are connected. That we live in an interconnected universe where there isn't just a person that suffers over there and a violence that takes place over there and a death over here, but all of it seeps into the very earth itself. And it's this chain of suffering. It's this chain of blaming. It's this chain of violence. He makes this, Jesus made this statement about this death of Zechariah. He says, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Where Jesus is, we think that Jesus is referring to this person who's mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, it's kind of the last um, witness that we have of an unjust murder, a death. Not that there's ever a just murder, that was probably an oxymoron. But that there, this is kind of the, the, the end of it and the sacred history. 
And so Jesus kind of bookends, right? You have the blood of Abel at the very beginning of the sacred history of our text. And then Chronicles would have been kind of the last book of the Hebrew Bible, if you look at the way it's kind of ordered for, for, for within Judaism. So this is kind of the end of it. In all of it, there is this history of bloodshed. There's a history of violence. There's a history of when you don't like what somebody else says, you do violence and we murder and we kill. And then Jesus comes, I believe, and many others do as well, that Jesus comes and enters into that violence to show here's how it stops. <laughs> here's how it stops. Instead of returning violence for violence, I'm going to return love for violence. And I'm going to shed my blood. And so we have the death, and we have Jesus conquering death, hell, and the grave. And we have the imagery of blood being shed to heal us of our wounds. And again, it's this, it's, it's this huge image. It carries through. And we have this letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament that talks about these two bloods, the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus. And so the letter to the Hebrews is written sometime after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And the letter to the Hebrews, if you're wondering, the big theme of the letter to the Hebrews is Jesus is better. <laughs> That's just the great theme of it. It's like Jesus is better. It starts off with like Jesus is just the, the most glorious one, image of God, like is better. And, and, and it talks about these two bloods in that context. So in Hebrews 11, chapter 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a sacrifice greater than Cain. So the writers of Hebrews making an interpretation as to why Abel's sacrifice was better, right? Why, not even, well, he says greater than Cain's, but why it was pleasing and why Cain's wasn't. It says, through this, he was attested to be righteous, God bearing witness to his gifts. And through this, though dead, he still speaks. And how does he still speak? Through this story of his murder, right? Of his being kind of sacrificed because Cain displaced, right? What he didn't want to hear. But here's, here's so powerful. What was his, this voice speaking? Well, throughout the tradition and history of Abel, we see that his voice was speaking vengeance. Like the blood of Abel was crying out for vengeance. And we see this language quite often over and over again. Crying out for vengeance, there's a, there's a little um, book or, or writing called The Testament of Abraham. And The Testament of Abraham is a Jewish writing, and it was written probably around the same time as uh, Matthew or some of our Gospels uh, were written. It's certainly been influenced by Christian teachings and things like that. But this, it's the story of Abraham dies and kind of Abraham in his death, he wants to see what happens in the universe with the end of the world and when heaven. And, and, he, and he's kind of given this tour and uh, by, I think it's Michael, the archangel. And, and he's given this tour in this story and he sees these two lines in heaven. And if you're familiar with Jesus a little bit, you might recognize some of the language, but he sees these big lines and there's, a, there's two gates. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. And there's lines going into these. There's a whole bunch of people going through the wide gate, broad gate, and there's a whole bunch of people, there's a fewer people going through the narrow gate. And, as you, and he says, oh, I want to go see what's going on. So the angel takes him through the broad gate where all these people are, and there's a man sitting on a throne judging those coming through the broad gate. And some are going left and some are going right. And who the person is on the throne in this letter, this testament of Abraham is Abel. And what this tells us is that there was this imagery, there was this Jewish imagination, this understanding that those human beings who were sacrificed, who were murdered, who experienced injustice, that they would judge men because they deserved vengeance. But here's what Hebrews 12 says. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. That there was this understanding of vengeance, and that really is the cycle of violence. 
to avenge the violence. I'm mistreated, so I return it back because I think it's justified, and this is what I do. But Jesus' blood is more eloquent and speaks more eloquently than the blood of Abel because it doesn't ask and look for vengeance, but it looks for forgiveness. It looks for healing. Like Rather than this kind of transactional, kind of, okay, legal, like God requires this, we give it, kind of very, very sanitized way of seeing it. No, Jesus says, hold on. Like I, God so loved the world that God took on flesh to show us a more eloquent way of life, that we don't have to live under this big lie of vengeance, but we can love and we can have this power. And there is this blood image that flows. And what Jesus was doing, I believe, in coming and walking around on this earth, the Christ that took on flesh was saying, listen, here's the deal. The blood, the blood of all those who have suffered and died unjustly is still crying out, including the blood of Jesus. And we shouldn't miss that big theme. And we have it, I mean, we have it explicitly in Scripture where we have these bright moments where, where we hear God like inspiring people who are saying, I don't want, God doesn't want sacrifice. God doesn't want the shedding of blood. God doesn't need it. God doesn't want that. And it, it's breaking in. And the act of the cross, the beauty of it, what makes Good Friday I've come to be in this space to believe that it's not because I'm such a terrible person and the only way that God could ever allow me in God's presence is if somebody died for me on my behalf. I think, the reality, I think that what we see with Jesus is, no, the suffering that has existed from the beginning to the end, I'm coming and I will participate in and I will show you how to stop it. I will show you how to stop the violence. And so now we're called to listen to the blood because Jesus shows us just how bad we can be <laughs> when it comes to shedding blood. That we can miss it and we can exclude the God of the universe and we can hang that God on a tree and shed that God's blood in the name of God. And so the blood cries out. Be careful who you exclude. The blood cries out. Be careful who you seek vengeance towards. And so the invitation, I believe, is for our everyday normal lives to listen, to listen, to believe that Abel's blood is crying out in the experiences of others today. That if all suffering is truly connected, if all injustice is connected, that this, that this earth that is soaked with the violence of war and blood the ground itself is continually crying out in the experiences of others today. We talk about it in terms of like this. We say the fear of the other that pervades our world. The fear of the other. What I don't know, what I can't understand, who I don't know, who I can't understand, who I'm told is bad. We have become afraid of that person. And we've talked about a 10-year vision of peacemaking where one of our unacceptable truths is that we will seek to understand that fear, that we will seek to end the fear of other in three primary, primary places, homophobia, racism, and sexism. That the blood of Abel cries out to us in the experiences that come from this fear. And so to do this, to really listen, means that we have to start to have difficult and uncomfortable conversations 
That if I'm really going to listen to the blood of Abel, if I'm really going to listen to the blood of Jesus that, that points me to the injustice, the unjust way of functioning, the way in which we are so quick to kill what we don't understand, to kill, to murder, to set outside the camp, to say you're not welcome into the temple when we don't understand it, that, that disposition, we have to start having difficult and uncomfortable conversations like God had with Cain, Right? Here's Cain, thinks he's out in the clear, which I don't know how Cain would ever think he'd get away with it. There's only four people on the planet, according to the story. Surely you're going to know when 25% of the world's population is missing. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, like, God comes and he says, he starts to have a very uncomfortable conversation. Where's your brother? Where's your brother? We have to have uncomfortable conversations. What's happened in our world? We have to listen. If we're going to listen, that means we have to actually understand what happened. We can't ignore it anymore. You know, Yahweh says to Cain in this wonderful story, what have you done? What has been done is such a brilliant question for us to ask, to truly listen. Like, what happened? Understanding it. We have this beautiful uh, story that was written by Reverend Sarah Eyre called A Truth That Ricochets about learning to listen to the screams around us. Check this out. I went to a lecture once, uh, an interfaith conversation with interfaith leaders. Whispers bounced off the church's tile floors as people shuffled into place, carrying hope alongside assumptions, mixed into pockets like loose change. About halfway through the evening, a young woman in a blue hijab began speaking. She was the youngest person on the panel, seated far to the left, and you might almost miss her if you weren't paying attention. But not here, not when she spoke. In quiet determination, she told us of fear and persecution. And she told us of hatred and racial slurs thrown at her people from car windows like bombs. It was a truth I did not know. It was a truth that ricocheted like sunlight through the cathedral windows, touching almost everyone that day. Then a man in the back, who could have been me, who has been me, approached the microphone and said, your people are persecuted, you live in fear, you're battered by hate. If that is true, then why am I now just hearing about it? Why is your story not on the news? Why have you not spoken up about it? The air was still, partly because we held our breath in anticipation and partly because the spirit slows her dance when we stand at the edge of truth. The woman in the blue hijab leans into the microphone and she whispered with a quiet strength that can only come from years of practice. We are screaming. If there's one truth in my life that unfolds again and again, it is the need to listen. For again and again, I will try with good intentions to act and walk with love, but again and again, I will make mistakes. 
Again and again, I will say the wrong thing. Again and again, they'll call me Peter. And again and again, they will be right. So again and again, I will pray for a truth that ricochets, for ears that will listen, and for space to hold truth. If people are screaming, and to be clear, people are screaming, I do not want to miss it. I love that line, if people are screaming, and to be clear, they are. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. Here's where it gets really uncomfortable. For whatever reason, we are so afraid to confront the realities of our world. And I'm not sure why that is. I think it's because we have a theology that lends us to be afraid of God. And so we hide. It seems like the pattern. But yet, even in this story of Cain and Abel, like, God protects Cain. And God doesn't see the answer to Cain's mistake, more violence. He actually calls for, God actually calls for vengeance in this story on those that would harm Cain. And he marks Cain to protect Cain from more violence being shed. Yet we miss that in the story. And we just like go on. And even within the text, even within this biblical text, there's like, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, kill people in the capital, in the death penalty. And it's in the Bible. But you go to the story of Cain at the very beginning. And if there was ever a point in time where you'd go, well, if God wanted the death penalty, there it is. And I know like now I'm waiting in that water that people are like, don't get political. I'm not trying to get political. I'm just like, it's in the Bible. Like if there was ever a moment where the God of the universe who knew exactly what was going on with Cain, who could say this was so unjust, like he could have like vaporized him by the theology that holds to some of these texts, but God doesn't. So the first thing is we have to recognize that God's not afraid of our ignorance. God's not afraid of our mistakes. Love doesn't work that way. But if we're really going to listen to Abel's blood today, We've got to move past our ignorance and our excuses. We have to do it. And this is the part where I get it. Like it gets uncomfortable and I start to get the emails and maybe it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to be a part of a church. It's going to get political. I'm not trying to be. I mean, just you can't deal with human life and what the scripture big picture is and how we think about God and not see how it rolls out into the way we parent and, and treat people and take care of the those that are the, the most vulnerable in our, I mean, so we have to move past ignorance, which is just not knowing. And sometimes we need to repent of willful ignorance where we just refuse to imagine that we could be wrong and listen to the other side. I mean, Cain pleaded ignorance in the story, right? Where's, where's Abel? I don't know. I don't know. That's what he says. I don't know. I don't know where Abel is. And then he makes an excuse for not knowing. Am I my brother's keeper? And we continue to make excuses. I mean, let's just be honest, right? My, my belief is that we make our excuses that are comfortable for us in these areas of homophobia, sexism, racism. You want to know what that sounds like today? by the way. I never owned slaves. I never owned slaves. I mean, am I my brother's keeper?
You know what it sounds like when it comes to sexual minorities? It, within the church, this is what it sounds like. We're all sinners saved by grace. My sin's no different than anybody else's sin. Their sin's no different than mine. Am I my brother's keeper? And that like sentiment excuses the faith, the community of faith from entering into the pain of a sexual minority community that has been abused, that has been, their very personhood has been called sin. And it excuses us from actually listening to the blood that has been shed. And only when we actually listen, only when we say, no more ignorance, no more excuses, only when we'll walk into a beautiful gospel, a better way of understanding blood that's not based on sin and sin covering. And, and, and I understand that. And we can have a big conversation and why I don't think it's a bad metaphor that the way it was understood within Paul's framework at times. But why the big picture gives us such a more beautiful gospel. Only when we do that, when we recognize that God is love, that God cares and holds us in our mistakes, that if Cain, who committed the first homicide, could be cared for by God, that we can be cared for by God. And we can own it and understand it and grow from it and learn. And we can stop shedding blood. And we'll all find those ears to hear the blood that cries out and we'll hear the truth that will set us all free. So, Here's what we're gonna do today. This has been kind of a, a time of reflection. We had a, a space in our service for confession. We had a space to just kind of release stress and prepare our hearts. So now we have space to just sit in the reality of this pain. And, and so I hope that you hear God inviting you for the next few moments to just commit to listening to the stories that we wanna avoid that you'll commit to listening to the blood of Jesus that calls us to forgive, to understand ourselves as forgiven, to understand every person as forgiven and loved by God. And so we're gonna just take this next few minutes and, and the band's gonna play a song and I'm not gonna come back out. Nobody's gonna come back out and dismiss you. This is just a moment for you to reflect. And I'd ask that you not, don't, like this is not the time if you're at home or in the room to don't finish filling out your connect card during this time. Don't get your offering ready during this time. Just set it all aside for a few minutes. To take some of those things we talked about earlier and breathe in and breathe out. And receive the invitation by God to lament and listen. To listen to the blood that cries out. So this song that they're going to play is kind of a haunting song. It's called Welcome to the Darkness. And I just wanna kind of bring you to one lyric in it that just says, comfort and illusion numb us to the pain. It's like that's why we don't listen to the blood because it's uncomfortable. And we like to build up the illusion that I really have nothing to do with it. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, you know what? All lives matter and we can just, we're just all the same. We're all human beings. We're all created in God's image. It doesn't matter what your sexuality is, but these things do matter because of the injustice that's been taken place based upon them. And so it does, it is important that we recognize it. And it's, it's uncomfortable, I understand that. And in it, we don't see our privilege. And so what do we do? We continue that scapegoat and blaming. And it's a cycle that we don't, I don't think we want to. I just think we do until we pause and listen. So that's the invitation. Lord, open our hearts and our eyes. But today, God, open our ears 
to the blood of Abel and to the blood of your son, Jesus, that cries out to us again and again.